With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. If I'm picturing myself writing a novel, I'm somehow picturing myself as like a small animal running through a field, like anything could happen. It's like the opposite. The feeling of writing a memoir to me was much more like being an enormous animal in a very small cage who was like, how do I not crush everything that matters to me in the moment that I'm trying to say what is happening? Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Ramon Alam. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. Isaac, this week you spoke to the writer Mira Jacob. Mira is the author of a novel, The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing, from 2014, and a memoir, Good Talk, which was published last year to what seemed to me like universal acclaim. It's a memoir in graphic form. Mira talks a little bit about the learning curve there. She wasn't before this book, a comics artist. But Ed Park said of the book in his review for The Times, quote, The old comic book alchemy of words and pictures opens up new possibilities of feeling. End quote. That's pretty high praise for a first attempt. Yes, and I definitely think Ed Park is right. I am a big lover of comic book work in general, and in particular, actually, comic book nonfiction. A lot of my favorite books fall within that designation for whatever reason. And I think at least in part, it's because of some things that are inherent to the medium. Like when you have a still image paired with text, there's at least three different layers of meaning created. There's the words, the images, and then the interplay between them. And then when you when those are panels and they exist in sequence, there's a, even a fourth, which has to do with its relationship to what comes immediately before and what comes immediately afterwards. And so um, there's this way in which you can appreciate them as they're kind of atomized parts, and then they gain additional layers uh, as it all adds up that I find really powerful. And uh, you can really do a lot with that, even though, you know, as Mira and I talk about in the interview, that's true even if your visual vocabulary is extremely restrained. And Good Talks is really, really restrained. It's such an unlikely turn, I think, because The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing is a sort of big conventional novel. And it's quite lovely. And Mira is really adept at the novelistic form. And so there was no reason to expect that after one pretty successful debut, she would turn her back on that, or or maybe it's less a matter of turning her back on it than experimenting in a different way. But I do have this theory that the culture generally has become more forgiving of artists who skip between these forms. I still think it's kind of surprising. Since we're listening to this interview and not looking at the images, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what good talk actually looks like. Absolutely. It's very spare in terms of its means. Every page has one to two panels on it, and almost all the panels consist of a kind of still image in the background. It's usually a photograph. Sometimes it's a stock image. Sometimes it's a photograph of the room or building in which the scene is set, or sometimes it's a kind of associative thing like a newspaper article or a magazine cover. And then superimposed on top of that is a drawing of whoever is in the scene. But they look almost like they've been cut out and then glued on. I mean, you know, that's the sort of uh, vocabulary we're talking about. And they, with very few exceptions, speak directly out looking at the reader. And their facial expressions never change over the course of the book. So you already have to, in your mind, do a lot of filling in the blanks, both inside and between the panels. But what's really fascinating is your mind just kind of does that automatically, and that's part of the pleasure of reading it. It's not similar visually, but aesthetically it is similar to a kind of educational animation I associate with like Sesame Street, where you'll have sort of a flat image talking right to the young audience and imparting something. And then what happens is that you finish the thing in your mind and it sort of comes to life in a way that is 
distinct from what you might encounter on the page or just on the screen. Yeah. And at least for me, that's part of the pleasure of reading comics in general. But that aspect of the comic reading process, I think, is taken, you know, extremely far within this visual vocabulary. So now let's listen in to how Mira Jacob works. This episode of Working is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love listening to in-depth interviews and discussions of craft and the creative process or whatever the heck it is all the other podcasts you listen to do, you call the shots with what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So, as you know, I was a huge fan of your first book, uh, Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing. And because I have a feeling that the process for the two books we're going to talk about today were pretty different, I was wondering a little bit about just actually on a nuts and bolts writing level what writing your first novel was like and how that proceeded. Oh, sure. You know, I mean, it is, you're right. It's really different to write a novel versus a memoir. And I think. If I, in a novel, if I'm picturing myself writing a novel, I'm somehow picturing myself as like a small animal running through a field, like (laughs) anything could happen. Who knows? Is it joy? Is it terror? I don't know. But it's just like all possibilities are open. I don't know what exactly I'm trying to get to, but the process of getting there feels really fun. Um, Because I think by necessity, like one of the things that I love about a novel versus let's say a short story is that um, it can wander a bit. And, and what comes out in the wandering is actually usually as interesting as the story itself as anywhere you were trying to get to. So like I started writing that book and I wrote it over 10 years and I wrote it through the death of my father and the birth of my child and getting laid off and all of these things. But it was really like going to an island where I got to control everything. Um, And that felt really amazing to be able to go to that place. And it's really different from writing a memoir. It seems like there's both logistical differences and I don't know, should we call them spiritual differences between those two things? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think (laughs) spiritual differences is a good way to say that. Um, There are, so logistical differences, one is that my memoir is, as you know, it's a graphic memoir. So I had to teach myself how to draw to do that. um, And I had to kind of make up a visual language as I was going and I had to learn a lot of programs to do all of it and, and a lot of software and a lot of like how to hold a stylus and all of these weird picky things that sound so boring. But in the moment that you're trying to learn them, you can just feel so utterly stupid every second. I didn't feel that way when I was writing the novel because I'd been writing my whole life and I had been trying to write a novel my whole life. So when it finally gelled, it was just like freedom, freedom, freedom. <laughs> um the memoir felt really different. It felt like, you know, I always think to myself, if I would have told myself in the moment that I decided to write slash draw this memoir, okay, you're going to have to teach yourself how to draw. And then you're going to have to learn these five software programs. And then you're going to spend like whole days in which you basically stay in the same position because you get so focused on what you're doing that by the time you think to move again, your back is going to feel like a pillar of salt. I probably would not have done it. That's interesting because, you know, there's two different constraints, right? Because there's the constraint of the art and the constraint of it being nonfiction, as opposed to, as you said, you know, the blank page where you can write anything, you know? It sounds like there was something good about those constraints, that that those constraints um, helped in some way. I am a huge fan of constraint. Um, When it comes to creativity, I, I mean, I... 
you know, I, I blame this on the fact that I'm a Capricorn, but really I need sharp edges and rules and that generates a lot for me. Um, mm. So yes, the idea of, I mean, one of the things that in the book, the artwork, you'll notice that none of the expressions ever change on the characters' right. faces. And that was, that was a deliberate constraint because I think, you know, it's about all these conversations that have affected my life, but a lot of them are really racially loaded. You know, a lot of times white audiences just feel really, you know, like, a lot of trepidation about even getting into that conversation. Um, and even brown and black audiences, we can feel exhausted too, just by having to talk about it all the time. So I was up against that. And I was up against that in myself as an artist and a creator. And so I decided I wasn't going to change the expressions because I didn't want to have to perform this sort of emotional work behind it. Mm -hmm. But what that meant is that it put a lot of pressure on every single line. Like every single line suddenly had to do a lot of work and I have to tell you, as a as a former kind of like metaphor junkie and a person who really likes writing down the exact feeling of an exact feeling, mm -hmm. it um, it felt amazing to kind of be like, no, you, you don't get to do that anymore. No more metaphors. None are allowed. <laughs> you know, you're not allowed to hint at anything. It's either there or it's not. It's very rigorous in how fixed the means are throughout it, right? It's like there's a usually... Not always, but usually a still photograph is the background. And then there's these kind of, do you think of them as cutouts? I almost think of them as cutouts of the people who are having the conversation. And they're almost always facing out towards the reader. And as you said, their facial expressions don't change. So I'm interested in how you develop kind of each of those things as the vocabulary for this book. So I can tell you that the first one of these that I ever made was um, when I was in India and I was, at, my grandmother was staying in kind of a retirement facility. She hated it. And she got really into soap operas and watching them at like volume 20 every day. And I went to see her and it was that typical, like the heartbreak of modernity thing where I think she had been so, I do not blame her for this. She had been isolated for so long that my presence there was kind of like, I might have well have been another character on the television, if not slightly less interesting. She never turned the TV off. It's like this idea that we were supposed to have a conversation. I was like, oh, we're just not going to talk the entire time I'm here, really. And then one day the power went out. And in like the span of three minutes, it was the craziest thing. She turned to me. And the first thing she was like, what happened to your face? And I was like, I, I, I don't know what happened to my face. And she goes, never mind. And then I was like, okay. <laughs> and, she, and, she, and then she was like, you know, when my brother was 19 and she's like, the British came and they, you know, and we all left school. We all left college. And we went to the streets and we protested them. And we said, you will not break us. You will not break us. And we fought them and we fought them. And they thought my brother, you know, was some revolutionary and they threw him in jail, but he wasn't a revolutionary. He was just a kid. And, you know, we kept fighting. We fought them and fought them. And so this is like, this is literally the television is off. All of this information comes out of her. And then, like two seconds later, she blinks at me and she's like, yeah, you've gotten too skinny. And that was, you know, and then the conversation was over. And I was like, what just happened? And it was, it felt like I'd been in a car accident with my, <laughs> like with my grandmother's psyche. And so I drew us very quickly as cartoon characters and I cut us out and I put these balloons over our heads. I drew those and I cut those out too. And I sent it to all my cousins. And the thing that I knew that they understood immediately, they were like, of course, this is our grandmother. This is how she speaks. This is how you drop through into another dimension with her sometimes. So when you ask me, like, the rules, how did the rules come up? The rules came up because I realized that there was this urgency that I could get to. If I left what you call cutouts, I think of them as paper dolls. Like, if I let the paper dolls speak, and if I couldn't rely on expressions, but I also couldn't rely on action, right? Nobody ever moves. You don't see somebody, like, carrying something. That's not really what they're doing. They're just holding the space of basically a, a brain or a psyche on the page. And like, what happens with that? What happens in those moments? How does your brain work to fill in the story? And these were all things I figured out just kind of by process of elimination, by mm. throwing things down on the page over and over again, and then seeing what moved me and what worked and what my brain could handle and what didn't, you know, what felt like it was losing the story. Were there a lot of kind of discarded versions of pages of what the visual vocabulary might look like when you, as you tried to find it? Yes. There was one where um, in an early take, I tried to draw one of a conversation with my mother in which we were both folding laundry and the laundry pile was getting smaller between us. 
And then when I looked back at it, I was like, what are you, what are you doing? Why is the laundry more of a character, more of a moving character in this scene than either you or your mother? Like, what's that about? And I was like, oh, it's because I'm nervous. I'm nervous to let the stillness in. I'm nervous of just having the fourth wall broken and just having characters speak plainly to the reader while they're speaking like to each other. Where do you think that nervousness came from? I think it comes from being a brown person in America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Honestly, I think yeah. it comes from being a brown person in America. I think it comes from being, um, and especially being a woman, but I think it comes from being in the kind of body where people expect you to placate them and they um, put their nervousness all over you and they need you to take it away as quickly as they can foist it upon you. So I think there's a part of me that's very keyed into trying to not be the scary thing people imagine me to be, not be the threatening thing people imagine me to be. At the same time, the thing that was making this book happen was a really deep sense of rage and a sense of being exhausted by the kind of person that demands that of me. So a lot of it was kind of walking into that space and saying, okay, so if you want to do it differently, how do you do it differently? You know, there's both the decision to tell a memoir about this series of conversations and then also to tell it in comic book form or graphic memoir form or or however we're calling it these days. Um, And I'm curious about uh, how you made that decision and, and what made you decide to, you know, really go in that direction. There was a single kind of moment and incident that actually put this whole thing into motion, which is my son was six he was super into Michael Jackson. He, was, he would wear the fedora and the glove. And this was before all the sad Michael Jackson news that came out. So anyway, he was really into Michael Jackson. And my husband's white and I'm brown. And so he asked all these questions. And some of them were hilarious, like what happened to his other glove. And some of them were, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> such a good question, right? Um, yeah. I still think I'm like, that's such a good question. No one ever asked that question. Um, and then some of them were really harrowing but they they were sort of unintentionally harrowing so one time he asked me um you know he was really curious about like is my hair like michael's hair is my skin like michael's skin he was just trying to find himself in michael and he was sort of realizing at the same time that he wasn't quite like everyone else um like he was looking at his own skin and at me and his father and at one point he was like you know is michael jackson is he is he brown or is he white and i was like well he's he's brown he's black he, you know, he's a black American, but his skin is brown and he, you know, kind of, um, so yeah, he turned white and he was like, he turned white. <laughs> and I said, yeah, he, he turned, well, yeah, kind of. Um, and he's like, are you going to turn white? And I was like, no, I'm not going to turn white. And he's like, am I going to turn white? And I was like, no, you're not going to turn white. And he goes, daddy. And I was like, that is already white. And it was so funny when he asked that. And I was laughing so hard because I was like, I screwed this kid up immediately and forever. But then that same day, he was, you know, he'd been asking me little bits about what had happened in Ferguson because he saw little parts of it. He would hear it on NPR when we had it on in the house. And I was sort of trying not to really talk to him about it because he was six. And, um, and then he sort of came to me and was like, you know, mommy, there was a kid named Ferguson who um, was brown and he was shot by a white policeman. And I was like, oof. And I was like, well, okay, so his name was Michael Brown. He was a kid. He was in a town called Ferguson. You know, later on, he said, you know, he asked me at one point, are white people afraid of brown people? Which was such a crazy question to try to answer. And then even after that, is daddy afraid of us? And all of these things together, like, all of the questions were getting so hard to handle and they were really veering between this very funny place and then this really brutal place. And I knew if I were going to try to write an essay about it, no one would believe me Hmm. because that's what people do with essays right now. They just find a way to use every word against the writer and expose them for the ridiculous human feeling thing that they are instead of like, you know, just sitting with it for a minute. And, um, and so I knew I was trying to write an essay about it and I couldn't, and I couldn't because it was my son, you know, I just didn't want to expose him to those people. So that's when I started drawing it. I started drawing it with the same kind of impulse that I had 
in that earlier moment with my grandmother, which was just like, I don't know how to, I don't know how to encapsulate what just happened or what to make of it, but here it is. Right. There's something about the spareness that just like exposes it totally. If you're just looking at two people talk, it's a little bit like eavesdropping and you're totally, you're okay with eavesdropping. Yeah. Everyone loves eavesdropping. <laughs> right? Who doesn't love eavesdropping? Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's like, that's a God. That's one of the things I miss the most right now is eavesdropping on people. <gasps> oh my God. Can we have a moment for that? Really? It is like the joy of my life is wandering around and listening to shit that is not my business. <laughs> I just want it back. <laughs> But that is something you sort of give the reader over the course of the book is like you're eavesdropping on these conversations and then suddenly you're implicated in them in this way because the people are actually looking right at you. Yes, that was kind of the fun part of it is that I could both write the thing that I wanted to write and say it as truly and plainly as I could possibly get to and know that at a certain point the reader is going to be implicated if they're propelled to read the book they're going to feel it. Totally. I feel like a lot of people these days, including me, are changing forms project to project, right? Or they're much more open to that idea that they're going to jump media or they might, you know, this might be a play, this might be a movie, this might be a book, you know, who knows. But there's a certain terror that that brings with it, at least for me, I don't know. And I I was wondering about how you kind of ran off that diving board and, and psyched yourself into being like, the right form for this is a graphic memoir, and I'm going to go figure out how to do that. So I will tell you, one of the things that helped me, that kind of ran me off that diving board, was how many people requested a sequel to Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing, the novel that I'd written. <laughs> uh-huh. And it was really, and it was like, you know, I was doing my, I was kind of finishing up touring, and I would talk to people, and they were like, so what is next? Like, when is the next? And, and are you going to follow up? And I was like, people, like, that book is over that I ended it. It feels very ended to me. And I realized that the more they asked about it, the more nervous I felt about my own creative life. Cause I was, I felt this need to placate expectations. It's hard when your obligation marries your art, right? Like, I mean, at a certain point we're all working artists. So, it, you know, it's not that you're in love with every project all the way through, but when your first foot you set into it is one of obligation, then it's really hard to produce something that you love in a vital way, or that's true of me. I should say that I love in a vital way. It's hard for me to do that. Um, So part of it was that, but the other part was I talked to a friend of mine who's an architect who said the sweetest thing to me. He said, when I'm done with one building, what I like to do is I think of my kind of creative drive as a topographical map. And he's like, and you know, I've just covered one quadrant of it with what I've made. And he's like, but I don't want to go to the quadrant either one that's like adjacent to me. I want to go to the one that's like the tiny little glimmer, the diagonal one. And he said that to me in the same moment that I was kind of wrestling with this feeling of like, oh, do I have to do I have to do the same trick again? And it felt like such a liberation. Like even when I tell it to you now, I still get very excited <laughs> about the whole idea of a like a topographical map split into quadrants and heading toward the one that is not bordering me. Like what no, does that feel like? Doesn't that feel like amazing to you? Like, isn't there just something like, oh, great. Like, it feels amazing, but it also feels like a little bit like parts of that map are like the old medieval ones that say there be dragons because they didn't know what was there, you know, and part of you is like, (laughs) great, maybe I'll see a dragon. And then part of you is also like that fucking dragon might burn me to a crisp. Totally. And I will tell you, I knew the dragons. I knew the dragons that were going to come for me. They were pretty obvious. Um, Mm. What were they? If. I mean, comics dudes, for one, mm-hmm. you know, like there's, there's a certain kind of comics bro who doesn't love people of color being in the space at all, doesn't like women being in the space at all. And lo and behold, I'm both. And a mom, which is a super easy target. Like I knew that there was a certain, you know, why was I stepping into a space that I didn't even have a right to? So I knew that that guy was out there, but that guy's been everywhere for me forever. Um, right. And, you know, like there's no, there's no, nothing I can do in my life that isn't ultimately going to terrorize that guy. So. I kind of knew that, and I knew that the the harshest thing I was going to get was um, people saying that the art was amateur in some way or, you know, not sophisticated. I just sort of worked with that. I was like, yeah, okay, so let's just leave it at amateur. Like, do the best amateur you can do. Like, what does it look like to make people that are paper dolls 
and flat static backgrounds and not worry too much about the borders of your boxes or how beautifully your dialogue bubbles are drawn and design a font yourself so that it looks like a font that you probably designed yourself and tell a story that is urgent. What does it look like to work within the boundaries of what you can actually do and go ahead and put your whole heart into it? I didn't do this thinking, I'm going to prove to everyone that I am the greatest artist on every level. I just thought, man, I've got this story and I want to tell it this way. And like, hopefully someone will get that. Mm. Were there particular, you know, books or other pieces that you turned to for kind of influence or inspiration over the course of, you know, figuring out the drawing of it? You know what? I read a lot of um, Linda Berry's books just for... Yeah, those are great. Sarah's great. She's amazing. And I think of her as a kind of just a beloved figure in just the amount of generosity that she has when it comes to art. So I read, you know, she has obviously syllabus is her more famous book, but um, what it is is super smart and has a lot about like how to connect the sort of drawing mind to the story mind and what do we look for and how do we move through worlds. And um, so that was really helpful. And then, you know, I mean, this sounds so cheesy, but like in terms of fearlessness, I've got, you know, I came from immigrant parents. Like <laughs> if there are people who have had to learn and relearn how to start over and how to become new and how to kind of wobble their way through a world, it is them. Like an ability to, when you get scared, get curious. Yeah. And I've seen them do that over and over. So a lot of that was, you know, when I would freak out and be like, I have no idea how to do a font. What do you do? What do you mean do a font? What do you do? How do you do a font? And then I would just calm down and be like, people have made fonts. You can make a freaking font. Like just sit down and do it. Like sit down and figure it out and troubleshoot and do it and do it to the best of your ability. It doesn't have to be perfect. It has to be legible so someone can read the book. That's it. There's so much to be afraid of even Mm -hmm. in this moment, right? There's so much to be afraid of. And I find that when I can get back to curiosity, that's when I feel like I've got the ground under my feet again. We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with the writer Mira Jacob. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. One of the things we'd love to do with this show is help solve your creative problems. Whether it's a specific challenge about your work or a big question about inspiration or discipline, send them to us at working at slate.com. If and when we can, we'll put those questions to our esteemed guests. And uh, before we get back to the show, we have one more announcement. On Wednesday, June 24th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, June Thomas will be talking with Julio Torres, Anna Fabrega, and Fred Armisen from the amazing HBO show Los Espookies. They'll talk about how Los Espookies came into being, what it was like for sketch comedians Torres and Fabrega to write a sitcom, and the challenges of making a bilingual show. You can join them and ask questions by going to Slate's Facebook page or YouTube channel at the time of the event. We'll have links to those in the show notes, and you can go to slate.com slash live for more info. Welcome back to Working. I'm Ramon Alam. Let's hear the rest of Isaac's conversation with Mira Jacob. So when you were writing Good Talk, like the original pages or each scene or whatever, how do they start? Do they start with the text? Do they start with the images? What what comes first? I wrote it like a screenplay and then, because I, I love dialogue. But then when I would put those words on paper, I would, I would understand immediately that I had overwritten by about 60%. But I would write the kind of emotional beat of what needed to happen. And then once the picture was behind it, I would let everything that wasn't essential drop away. So the lines would get spare, like more and more spare, basically. 
Because Good Talk is a memoir, you're writing about real people, many of whom you share your life with, like your husband or your son or your mom. Uh, how did that affect the writing of the work? What is the process of, of kind of writing that story when your characters are real people who have real opinions? So remember how we were talking about how fiction is like a little animal running across a field? <laughs> Who knows what could happen? This is like the opposite. <laughs> the feeling of writing a memoir to me was much more like being an enormous animal in a very small cage who was like, how do I not crush everything that matters to me in the moment that I'm trying to say what is happening? There's a way in which you're sort of taught to have distance from your own experience and that that distance will provide you with a way to tell it. Well, I didn't get that choice because I was writing this book. I pitched it before Trump was elected. I thought it was going to be a kind of book of funny conversations about identity. As I was writing it, Trump was elected and uh, my in-laws are avid Trump supporters and my family started kind of breaking apart in a way that was very painful for everybody involved. And so at some point I was like, oh my God, you're going to be writing this from the middle of the battlefield. This is not great. This is not an ideal situation for maintaining objective. And what I came up with was this idea, which is that, um, you know, my, my in-laws, I, I love them very much. My father-in-law recently passed. I was very close. I am still close with them. Um, I, it's been really horrifically hard. Their support of Trump. It's caused an enormous wedge between us. Um, and it's broken my heart. So like all of those things are real at once. None of them really weighs more than the other. They're just all kind of bafflingly hard to hold. And what happened was I, I wrote like 80 different conversations and I realized that there were some of the conversations with them were just such, I guess you just call it low hanging fruit, like such an easy way to paint them into a corner of, you know, vaguely racist, you know, liberal-ish, not really, you know, just like it was, it was very easy to write a scene that I knew would get all of Twitter enraged. What was harder to do was to write the book in a way where it was, where my love for them felt just as present as any of my issues with them. To do that, I just found myself asking myself over and over again, after I wrote the whole thing, I would read through each section and especially with them. And I would ask myself if I was writing it for vindication or if I was writing it for clarity. And if it was for vindication, then I had to cut it. Mm. No matter like how good it felt to air that dirty feeling, no matter how entitled I felt to the rage behind it. If it was vindication, then it just had to go. Right. That's one of the seductive dangers of autobiographical writing is, is right. you know, that you could be like, oh, and here's how right I am. Right. And this is how exactly how right I am. And I am so right. I am the rightest of rights. Yeah, totally. But that's, I feel like that's just not a very deep understanding of who any of us are at any given moment with any luck. You know, if you're reading this book, you think that I'm a real asshole sometimes. <laughs> and cause I am a real asshole sometimes. And there are a lot of people who, who read that and are like, I can't believe you're that person. Um, you know, you should be nicer. And I'm like, I should be, but I'm not. So like, so what does that look like? What, what does it look like to like admit that I'm actually not that nice um, on a page? But what does it also look like to admit that I love my, you know, pretty racist in-laws and I'm brown and it's painful for me and it's painful for my son? Like, what does it look like to hold all of that at once? That was the right. thing I was trying to get to. And the difference is for me, like when you're writing something for clarity is when you can really, when, you, when you're writing something that you didn't know yourself. Um, and when you're figuring out something in the course of writing it, that to me is the right level of vulnerability to bring into something like a memoir. It's like you have to, you write yourself into it. And by doing that, you actually figure out your life at the same time. Yeah. You know, one of the other things that the book becomes about is, of course, your relationship with your husband, Jed Rothstein, who's also a wonderful artist in his own right, a documentary filmmaker. And, uh, and I was wondering, you know, you're both creative people. You're living these creative lives. Are you involved in each other's work? Do you give each other notes? You know what? <laughs> I'm laughing because yes, yes, yeah. we do. He is my most feared critic and also <laughs> the person that I cannot do it without. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. I write something and I show it to him and he has a reaction 
and I have to kind of recalibrate. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. Like a lot of times, even when he's trying to get the words out, out of his mouth, I feel like there's most of me that's sort of quietly shrieking like, shut up, shut up, shut up, because I don't <laughs> want to know what it is that he doesn't like, because then I know I have to address it in some way. Or if I don't, you know, a lot of times, as with anything, I, you know, any of us that are used to getting feedback about our art, it's not that you do the thing someone suggests to you, because that's usually their answers are not your answers but the kind of weakness they show you or the flaw that they show you has to be addressed or the place in which, you know, that didn't kind of communicate to them is a place that has to be addressed. So yeah, we do communicate a lot about stories, um, about what's working. We help each other brainstorm sometimes. One really interesting thing to me about this process, because you just asked me about having it be based on real people. Um, one of the most interesting things about Jed Rothstein to me is that no matter how I wrote him in this, and I wrote him several different ways, and some of them really could have Really, had they gone out in the world, they would have done a lot of damage to him because I, I think I was so scared to write about it as a real person at first that I kind of wrote him as a white everyman, which is mm. not who he is. And But no matter how I wrote him, he never objected. Um, huh. He just said, it's your project. There were certain things that were sort of just blocking and the theatrics of it um, because it's a visual book that he would kind of weigh in on. But in terms of the content and specifically you know it wasn't he was like i'm not going to edit your rage i'm not going to tell you what to say and what to not say and and i'm like well do you want to tell me when you're uncomfortable he's like oh i'm uncomfortable the whole time i'm uncomfortable <laughs> the entire time do we need to talk about that yes it's uncomfortable for me next you know right. <laughs> it was just sort of like okay so you know that was um it was really interesting i think yeah because he it sounds like he was able to recognize that his discomfort was not actually a creative problem for you right I think yeah. that is true. And I think, I do think of it as an enormous gift to be able to write about the problems in our interracial relationship in a way that was true and real. I know other people that are in interracial relationships recognize them. I know because they always come and tell me, oh my God, you wrote down the stuff we're not supposed to write down. <laughs> um, and, you know, or, and there's such relief when they're like, oh, you guys do it too. And I'm like, yeah, we all grew up in the same white patriarchy and we really go through it with each other because we are both products of the white patriarchy and he happens to be a white man and that sets up a fucked up dynamic. So we have to investigate that shit constantly. It seems to me that that's one of any number of difficult, thorny, and also quite painful subjects that your book is grasping towards, holding for long periods of time, looking at from a lot of different angles. How do you create space for yourself to explore and hold kind of the emotional parts of the creative process? Wow. How do I, mm. I mean, I can tell you if I'm just being totally honest, I was terrified the entire time I was writing this book, which is funny because I don't actually talk about that a lot. People, I know that it's funny, like it's a really funny book. And, and so that's, I think what's partly helpful about getting about people picking it up is that they're laughing a lot. Or what I hear most often is I was laughing and crying and I don't know why I was doing both of those things at the same time. But my experience of writing it was intense fear, fear of betraying the people around me, fear of, fear of cracking. I think the psychological toll felt really deep. I wish I had a bow to put on that for you. I don't actually have one. All I can tell you is I was really scared the whole time and I have some really good friends and I went on a lot of walks. And at some point I could draw myself back out of that place, like literally draw myself back out, out of that place. But in the two years that I was doing the really deep work in this, I was pretty shaky. Was there a moment when you realized that that had kind of gone away, maybe after the book was published or months later or something where you're like, oh, I, I actually feel 15% less scared about my book right now? I think I'm not scared about my book anymore. That's true. Um, now it's just the world. Exactly. Now it's just the world. Um, <laughs> no, you know, I think at some point when it was done and when I could read it and when, um, I think when it went into the world, what I was, I was really prepared for the angry white hordes to come after me and some have, and you know, that's what it is. But the thing that's more interesting to me is all of the black and brown teenagers that have found me. And have said, like, you're telling some part of my life or my aunt's life or my parents' life or this thing that I couldn't say out loud. You put it on a page. I feel like someone saw me. No one sees me. 
And I think that thing actually is really healing, even though the thing I'm showing them is not some healed version of myself. Do you know what I mean? Like that's not, I'm not offering them some hero's journey through it because that's not really what the book is. But I think just the idea of like you showed me some part of me, I think that's helpful. There's a lot of in the book, the kind of like, I am illuminating this problem, but I am definitely not fixing it for you. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea how. I have yeah. no idea how you yeah. can fix something that you just don't know how to fix. Yeah, of course. And of course, that's also something that, you know, particularly I think white readers go to writers of color expecting. And so it's another thing you kind of withhold from us that I think is part of how the book is working in its power. You know, that was um, that last piece in there, which is a, a letter to my son in which I had originally, when I was starting to write the book, I was like, this will be the thing that wraps it all up and makes it all make sense. And then afterward, you know, as I was sort of writing it, I was like, I don't have any wisdom to impart in here whatsoever. <laughs> um, and when, you know, once I realized that, I was like, okay, so you're just going to have to let go of the idea that this is going to wrap this up. This is going to like seal this up into a, into a nice tidy place. You, you are not that person. That was never going to be the end of anything that would even be vaguely described as a memoir by you. You're just going to have to like wrap this up into the place where you live, which is with a wild amount of unknowing and a real curiosity about all of it. Mira, thank you so much for coming on Working and talking about your work and the creative process. Thank you so much for having me. It's almost as good as running into you in a coffee shop. I know. One day, one day there will be coffee shops again. <laughs> it's true. Raise your hand if you are burnt out. If email is something that gives you like a shiver in your spine. You are not alone. I'm Shirley Leung, host of Say More from the Boston Globe. Our new series is Beating Burnout. We'll hear from Cal Newport, Krista Tibbet, and more. We'll talk about breaking bad habits and forming new ones. The cure for burnout is all of us caring for each other. Say more from the Boston Globe. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. So Isaac, there are about 10,000 things I want to follow up in this conversation. I loved hearing Mira talk about constraint as an essential part of her work as an artist. For her, she's talking, I think, about formal constraint, about literally learning how to draw a comic and using all this unfamiliar technology. Whenever I talk to people about the balance between the work that I do, which is writing, and parenthood, I, I point out that I never wrote a book in the many years that I was not a parent. And I think that little bit of constraint is really necessary for creative work. Or maybe I've just convinced myself that because I have two kids and unlimited freedom, like four months at a writer's colony, is impossible for me to imagine. Yeah. You know, you and I are both parents and we both have work to do. And there's also this pandemic. And most people have at least two of those things going on. And those are big limitations no matter what. Um, and I've really found that part of what comes out of that for me anyway is that I do far less procrastinating because I have less time within which to do it. It's just, you know, there's only so many hours in the day and I have to take care of Iris and cook dinner and stuff like that. And so often I've managed to be sort of more productive and more immediately creative with the time that I have, which has been a, an interesting thing to discover. I think you have to look for those silver linings wherever you can find them. Yep. I was struck in this conversation too by how you and Mira talked about the nature of autobiographical writing, that it's not necessarily about giving the writer the chance to work out her grievances or to reframe reality. And that's sort of not what I expected to hear because the novel is entirely invented, right? It's a wholly made-up construction in which the writer gets to play God, effectively. Whereas the memoir, you know, to hear Mira say it, should aim for some kind of objectivity. But of course, that's a subjective and personal exercise as well. You know, this is actually one of the reasons why I love comic book memoirs and don't always go for prose memoirs. Uh, in fiction, as you said, it's all made up. So if you have a first person narrator, that narrator is not the author. Even if they're an autobiographical stand-in, they aren't the author. They are instead a construct. And all narrators are inherently on some level unreliable. So when part of the pleasure of reading a novel is having a relationship to that narrator. 
in prose memoirs, the narrator is the author and they are in absolute control of the experience. Um, so they are not only giving you a story, they are usually interpreting that story for you. And there's very little room for the reader's subjective experience of that story. And I personally, as a reader, find that actually extremely frustrating because I want to have my own experience of the story. Uh, but I actually think part of the appeal for a lot of people in many contemporary memoirs is that the sort of subtextual thing they all have in common is that the first person subjective truth is truth, that it is as valid as objectivity, whatever that might be. And so that's actually why we go to them is that we want to be comforted that our own experience of the world <sighs> is determinative. I think that's actually what the appeal of the memoir, the contemporary memoir is. But in a comic book memoir, because the character is drawn, it's immediately placed into a kind of third person. And because you can't put as many words on the page, there's all sorts of room for the reader within that to have different experiences and judgments and everything. And you can actually hear Mira talking about it, that one of the reasons why the comic book form worked so well for her is that she could sort of let herself be an asshole and not try to fix that mm -hmm. for you and not mm -hmm. try to be ingratiating and just let you have your own experience of whatever it is that you've read. And uh, that's why, you know, I love this one. I love Fun Home. I love Mouse. There's all sorts of kind of comic book memoirs that do that and i think it's a really powerful thing uh it's also terrifying uh if you are the writer of it to expose yourself to the reader in that way in a lot of ways i think i don't think i could ever write a memoir for particularly that reason it just seems really terrifying and really exposing and especially with respect to Mira, for somebody who is already kind of talking specifically about being scrutinized and less powerful in the in the culture as a whole, because she is a woman, because she's a person of color, and because that's sort of the reality in which we live. Yeah, absolutely. I am obviously not a woman of color, but I did try to write a memoir at, at one point about some stuff that happened with my family. And, you know, um, one reason why I stopped trying to get it published was that I felt like I was exposing all of us too much. Again, I'm a white guy. You know, I, I, there's, I am in less peril in this world uh, to begin with. And uh, Mira was pretty clear that this was a really scary experience and one that made her feel very vulnerable. Um, and obviously, you know, feeling exposed and vulnerable is a, is a key part of a lot of people's creative process. But I think there's a whole different level that attaches to this kind of experience. And what I was really fascinated to hear Mira talk about was how those dynamics actually really found their way into all sorts of decisions around what the book was and how it was going to be made. She was sort of deliberately probing stuff that made her uncomfortable. And I think that a lot of good art comes from that impulse. I think if you're writing from the inverse impulse of sort of like grandiosity, then really what you're talking about is a kind of mania as opposed to a kind of vulnerability, which is probably the better place to be. I liked hearing Mira talk about kind of clearing some of this material with her husband, you know, and sort of he, her husband is also a sort of creative professional. And so hearing her talk about him as both like a partner in the story, because it is the narrative of their shared life, and also as like an outside voice or an outside set of eyes. I think that every couple kind of navigates this stuff a little differently, right? Like I, I interviewed Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen for working and they co-create stuff together, which is a different kind of relationship from being two independently creative people who give each other notes. And then there's folks like me. I, I'm married to someone who isn't an artist. She works in corporate America. She came from a theater background and she's a great, tough note giver, but has an extremely demanding job and does not always have hours to read drafts of everything, you know? <laughs> um, and I, I know like Ruman, your husband is a photographer and that's a very different medium from writing. D do you two give each other notes? Does he read your drafts? Do you look at photos and you know, how, how does that work with you? 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, we're married. We respect and value one another's input and insight. And I think it can be incredibly valuable to me as a writer to have a voice very close to me that does not belong to a writer. It belongs to somebody who thinks with his eyes as opposed to the whatever dumb corner of the brain that I'm using to think of of words. And I think similarly for David, I hope anyway, that if I can look at something and say, oh, it doesn't look right because my eye is not trained, I hope that that will be useful to him. But, you know, obviously this is just one more tricky component of balance in a healthy relationship. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny because you and Mira talked about eavesdropping. And that really struck a chord with me because I also really miss that. And I think that that is like a huge part of maybe not just creative life, but actual um, urban life and the pleasure and the texture of urban life, being able to go out and hear outlandish things being said, or you hear a snatch of conversation in a foreign language and you think, wow, what is this amazing place I live in where people are talking about all kinds of things that I don't understand and I never really get to know. And uh, it made me really miss being out at coffee shops. Me too. I mean, I think, you know, I write from coffee shops. Actually, Mira and I met because we were both writing from the same coffee shop, you know? So I do think that sort of being out in the world, sponging up what people have to say, uh, you know, thinking about it for later, making up a whole scenario around a snatch of thing that you just heard. All of that is so invigorating. And it's not until you're sort of removed from that hurly-burly of city life that you realize how much you miss it, I think. It's like Joni Mitchell said, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Exactly. But I do think this conversation helped scratch some of my eavesdropping Jones. So I appreciate that. It was great to listen in. If you enjoy this show, please consider signing up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. It's only $35 for the first year, and you can get a free two-week trial now at slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Mira Jacob for being our guest this week. An enormous thanks to our producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week for a conversation between June Thomas and the writer Jasmine Guillory. Until then, get back to work. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.